Welcome everyone to the Collaboratorium series at McMaster. As you know, it's a cross-disciplinary initiative between the Directors College, uh, Canada's Gold Standard in Directors Education, a shameless plug, uh, the Executive MBA in Digital Transformation, and the Health Leadership Academy at McMaster. I'm your webinar host, Professor Michael Hartman. I also happen to be the Principal Executive Director and Co-Director of the projects I just mentioned. Um, for our returnees, you know that our webinar series examines how leadership, governance and innovation best practices are evolving in real time. And what this means for boards, senior executives and emerging leaders. So today is Governance Tuesday. And our topic for discussion is navigating disruption an insider's perspective on governance in the arts and culture sector. Um, before we get into our talk, uh, we have uh, you know a, a good mix of attendees from coast to coast, from east coast to west coast, north and south, some American colleagues, and perhaps some colleagues from Europe as well. So I see lots of familiar names. You sort of know that the Zoom house rules. Uh, I'm going to ask you just to keep your audio and your video muted for the time being. Um, but as we go along, please feel free to share some of your questions or comments with my colleagues. We'll do our best to get your questions and comments to my uh, two guest panelists, John Tusa and Suzanne Gouvremont. John Tusa is a British arts administrator, journalist, and former presenter of BBC Newsnight. He is the co-chairman of the European Union Youth Orchestra and was formerly the managing director of the BBC World Service and the Barbican Arts Centre. And as managing director of BBC External Services, he set up BBC World Service Television. He's also an author whose books include, and I love the titles, John, Pain in the Arts and Making a Noise, Getting it Right, Getting it Wrong in Life, the Arts and Broadcasting. Uh, John's board experience, as you'll hear shortly, is both extensive and fascinating, uh, wonderfully captured in his latest book entitled On Board, The Insider's Guide to Surviving Life in the Boardroom. And John, this is how we've connected because a colleague of mine said, you really need to read this book. And I said, not only will I read it, but I'll reach out to the author. And so we connected in the world of virtual. So, um, <laughs> so John, uh, drawing on your recent book, Yes. <laughs> which was written in a pre-pandemic world. Yes. Um, can you share some of the lessons and tips on how to effectively operate, quote, in the multi-stakeholder cooperative environment that characterizes the arts and culture sector, starting with your earliest board appointment as a new director joining the National Portrait Gallery in 1988? What did that first experience as a new board, minted board director what was what was that like? So what was your introdu introduction to the world of governance? What do you remember fondly and what do you want to stop remembering? I remember at the time, and I certainly remember now, that it was very weird indeed. When I had this phone call from the director of the National Portrait Gallery in London saying, would I like to become a trustee? And I thought, what does that mean? What do I know about it? What do I know about portraits? What do I know about the National Portrait Gallery? He said, no, 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 calm down, calm down. He said, we need to have somebody on the board who knows about the media. I was a journalist broadcaster at the time. So I said, well, this seems an interesting thing to do, and I'll find out what goes on. It was one of the most important decisions that I took because over the years, 
I found that sitting on boards was a profoundly learning experience. Whatever I may or may not have done on individual boards, I learned an enormous amount. And it's worth perhaps saying, you know, this was 30 years ago. This was how much board governance has changed and traveled. Almost everybody on the board was an academic of some kind. Almost everybody was immensely distinguished in their field. Most of them had sat on the board for 20 years or 20 years mm -hmm. or more. And there was no reason why they should ever change or ever do anything. And therefore, I was at the start of this process. Nothing to do with me. I just happened to be there where the whole board system became more professional. Uh, let's say it became more objective. It became slightly less academic, which was for very good reasons. And suddenly boards had to have a broad remit rather than a comparatively narrow remit. Um, they became John, less. if I could, yeah. it, Rob, sorry. That, that's, it's a wonderful uh, segue to uh, the chapter in your book, which I loved. Uh, it's your experience on the American board. Yes. Uh, the chapter title is Taking Governance Seriously. Yes. And that was um, uh, uh, maybe your introduction to how it was done in a different way, the first evolution. So maybe it, a few reflections on that as well. It certainly was. It's one of the most important things. My lessons sitting on a board, which was then called American Public Radio, which was based in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul, then became Public Radio International. And it was a fantastic board. And I then realized how seriously, I'll say Americans, if you understand, uh, that took the business of governance. And there was a very great chair of American uh, public radio called Kenneth Dayton, who was both a great business leader and a philanthropist and an absolute stickler for governance. And he said a number of key things. Governance is governance and management is management. And the two don't interfere with one another. People often forget this. He also said that governance in the non-for-profit sector is exactly the same as governance in the mm. corporate sector. Mm. And he was absolutely key in saying the chair and the chief executive must be in partnership, but independent. And you can parse that further by saying we are the closest partners until I, the chair, have to sack you. <laughs> and anybody who finds that too difficult really shouldn't get into the business of governance. But it was a profound learning experience. And I hope that I've carried quite a lot of the Daytonian principles. There are many, many organizations in the United States and throughout Canada who read Dayton's book on governance, is, uh, governance and management is management. Mm -hmm. That was absolutely something which I hope shaped how I approached governance thereafter. So it was quite an abrupt change from the almost 18th century view of governance in London, the National Port Gallery, to the 20th century serious professional view of governance of American public radio and the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul. There, was, there were two pieces in that chapter that I found fascinating. So one, uh, uh, a rough quote, but uh, 
Uh, structure and, uh, and process are, are uh, terribly important to have, have them in place, but ultimately it's the dynamics, the cultural dynamics around the table. And, and the quote is, a touch of social manipulation should never be undervalued in harmonizing board dynamics. Maybe expand a little bit on that. Yes, um, one of my uh, American colleagues said, you know, you must understand that, that boards that work well are boards where human relationships work well. And uh, you have to be very alert and aware to notice when, say, certain individuals are maybe talking too much, sometimes talking too little, sometimes being always awkward, sometimes trying to intervene too much. And what you need to do is to manage those relationships. You don't take them for granted just because somebody is a appears to be a difficult member. That's when you have to do something about them. Because if the board doesn't work as a sort of human entity, no amount of observing the rules and reading all the papers and doing the risk analysis and the objectives and things like that actually matter. If the board doesn't work as an human entity, then it won't work effectively. There's research, which is uh, research in the United States, which shows that boards which have some sort of social connection with one another are boards which work better. And boards where there's very little social connection, you know, nobody ever, ever gets together, they actually work less well. So it's not what happens just in the boardroom, it's what happens outside as well, which is incidentally one of the problems I think with the situations we're in now, right. it's the 30 minutes before the meeting, it's the 30 minutes after the meeting. Somebody said to me, you can't feel the meeting if you are on Zoom. It's admirable, it's essential, thank the Lord that we have it, but it is what it is and it's not complete. Well, maybe if we if we continue on with your uh, your boards, sort of, uh, the evolution of your thinking around board governance was also sparked by that period uh, on being on the board of the British Museum uh, in 2000 till uh, 2009, because that was a period of, of huge government governance reform um, post some of the big crises that took place in the early 2000s. So um, what changes did you observe during that period uh, on the British Museum uh, in particular? The British Museum before that period thought that because it was a very great academic historic institution, which it is, by the way, it is, by the way, 250 years old and one of the great world repositories of knowledge, objects and scholarship. And they thought that that was enough. It was enough to be that and they didn't have to do anything else. And indeed, when, um, say, the government, which gave the British Museum a considerable amount of money, would come and say, um, now, what exactly are you doing? What are your objectives? What are your purposes? On one occasion, the director of the British Museum, and he was sitting in Whitehall, being facing civil servants, faced with a question about what he as director was doing at the museum, folded up his papers, picked them up, and walked out of the room because they didn't have, in his view, any right to ask the British Museum what it did. 
And there was then a very painful period of four to five years when the British Museum discovered that it had to come to terms with modern governance. It had to be professional. It had to look after its money very much better. It had to answer to the government, not in the sense of being subservient, but it, 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 it had to do all the things that we now accept as being part of, of governance. It had to be a big, responsible institution. And it changed from being one that was entirely led by academics, and that's terribly important, to one which was a mixture of academics and let's call them, for want of a better word, practical uh, practical people. It wasn't that business people took over or anything, you know, crude like that, but the museum had to be run properly, to be seen to be run properly, and scholarship was only part of the gap. Scholarship by itself was not enough to deliver good governance. Well, that gets me to a, a, a final question, and it's a question that both Suzanne and I have uh, reflections on. So uh, uh, move forward to your appointment uh, to the University of Arts London Board of Governors. And I'm particularly interested in the case uh, study because I, I think governance in the university sector is uh, complex, challenging. And I'll draw on your quote again, which I've, uh, I kind of enjoyed. Uh, the default option for many academics is to suggest delay. Uh, the default option for uh, trade unions in an academic environment is almost always to seek delay. Delay is delay. It is worse than postponing a decision. So uh, maybe again, some reflections and then I'll, I'll ask Susan uh, to maybe uh, uh, sort of share some thoughts as well. Governance within uh, the university environment, um, John. So as your final appointment in the board space. space. Um, it seemed to me clear that an overlarge board, the so-called court of the university, it had more than 30 people on it. And uh, this was so cumbersome. And the academics, of course, knew very much more about what was going on in the university than the outsiders. The outsiders had, after all, a key fiduciary responsibility as trustees, as members of the court, to consider what the university was doing and how it was acting. But this was smothered uh, by the sheer volume of the academic presence. And there was a big difference, as you say, between the outsiders who thought, let's get things done, and academics who would, this generalization, but I make it, would say, well, let's not do it now. And after all, if you don't do it now, then that costs money. And this was a big, big change. We are, uh, appointed as the vice chancellor, a very, very good lawyer, um, not because he's a lawyer, but because he had been a managing partner of a law firm and knew how to handle people. And we agreed that things had to be done. And I said, you cannot run a university with 34 people sitting around that board. We're going to radically change it. And if I'm going to get individual, independent people to sit on the court of the government, they've got to feel they have something they can offer and they'll be listened to. And they can't be listened to when their academics always telling them what is happening, why it's right, and why nothing is ever going to change. And we changed it. He, the vice chancellor, then made all sorts of alterations. 
and we got a sense of purpose and direction, which was actually consistent with the aims and purposes of the University of the Arts London. It didn't vitiate it, it didn't undermine it, it didn't destroy it, it actually reinforced it. And uh, I have always felt great satisfaction in working with the right past chancellor to saying, let's have a governance which advances the purposes of the university rather than always saying, oh, do you know, this is a bit too difficult. And most of the objections came down to saying, this is a bit too difficult. And that was also a profound, profound change. That, that's raised some interesting uh, connection points for my second colleague here, Suzanne Gouvremont. Suzanne was appointed to the board of directors of CBC Radio Canada in 2018 for a five-year term. Uh, in term uh, of her many day jobs, so many hats, uh, she is also the director general of the Digital Arts and Creativity Center since 2000, August 2018. And since 1999, um, the General Director of the School of Digital Arts, Animation and Design, affiliated with the University of Quebec at Chicoutimi. Uh, this school trains the next generation in the art of 3D animation, television, and film post-production, video games, design simulations, and visualization, including uh, VR. Uh, for more than 20 years, Suzanne has been active in the digital media, culture, and education industry and has contributed significantly to the economic development of these industries in Quebec. Um, Susan's also uh, vice president on the board of directors of the Société de Développement uh, des Entreprises Culturelles and chairs the board of Collège Notre-Dame. Uh, previously, she was also director and president of the Bell Fund. And I believe, uh, Suzanne, um, you hold also a business de designation from a very good school in Quebec. Yes. 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 Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, I graduated graduated from law school in uh, Quebec University, and uh, I went to management school at the Hautes uh, Études Commerciales for uh, for post um, post uh, bachelor studies. Yeah, so, uh, um, uh, an excellent excellent uh, uh, institution, both. So, uh, very accomplished uh, board experience, uh, sort of managerial leadership experience. So, with that. Um, I was going to maybe start off, if you could uh, maybe build a little bit and the world of digital, sort of um, particularly how the digital focus of the arts organizations you work with have shaped the, uh, the influence of the board composition, have shaped perhaps the mission of the organizations. But maybe before we do that even, maybe one step back and, and really to share your thoughts on the challenges um, that the governance uh, community in the arts and culture sector has had to navigate over the last 12 months. So what in particular has been on the very top of the board agenda? Uh, maybe that's a good, good way to start the conversation, Suzanne, please. Okay, great, great. Thank you, Michael. And hello, everybody. I'm happy to be with you uh, this afternoon. I, I would like to just to make sure that, you know, I, I actually sit on four boards of administration right now, board of directors, and I am Anything that I will say today is not as I'm being a spokesperson for any of these boards. It's just my experience and the, the, the things that my reflections, my own that I have lived with for the past years. So just just to make sure, you know, that it's a uh, it's all um, 
it's all well understood. So um, what I have realized actually in the in the in our cultural boards that I sit on is that the notion of independence of board members becomes a really sensitive matter in times of crisis. You know, our, all culture industries are really highly financed by, by taxpayers, so by government funding, right? And, you know, theaters, books, music, film, dance, TV, live shows, you know, it's all, it's all within the same specter of our cultural uh, industries. So when dealing with distribution, distribution of public money, uh, through a cultural organization, we need to have a board that is well-balanced. Knowledgeable, of course, uh, about the industry needs, but sufficiently independent to be capable of, depending, of defending the funding decisions. Um, you know, pressure from popular artists, well-renowned producers happens often. So they have a strong and popular voice and they have the real, and they have the power to be disruptive. So you need to take that into consideration also and to be very strong with, uh, and to be very um, uh, uh, solidaire. So we say, um, you know, st stuck together when you come out of the boardroom, you know, you take a decision and everybody sticks to it, even though, you know, you represent perhaps a particular sector or you're more keen to another sector of the industry. Um, so in this time of crisis, like this pandemic, the cultural industries have been hit really, really hard. And of course, you know that. And they relied even more on the, on the support of our cultural organizations. So it was, you know, it was one thing to make sure that our organizations could continue to work, you know, at a distance and reorganize itself really quickly. But everything went off the normal route. Nothing happened anymore. No more festivals, no more exhibitions, no more live shows, no more book fairs, no more films, TV shootings. Everything stopped. Everything was canceled. And yet we needed to try to keep everything alive. So, of course, we turned to digital. What did we do? We turned to digital. So what and what did we do? We do and redo and redo all over again, programming, scheduling, live in ambiguity, live in uncertainty and learn to create differently. So for a board member that is used as, you know, we're used to having four or five meetings planned a year, a year in advance. We know we have a meeting in March. We have a meeting in October. We have an audit committee in that time. We have an RHR committee and strategic planning once every three years and everything. This did not happen last year. This was not the way that it worked. We had more scheduling. We had special meetings all the time. We had to be available on a short notice. We had to be able to take quick decisions, support our management team, and evaluate risk on a weekly basis. That was how quick it was going. So, you know, it was not a full-time job as a board member, but, you know, it was, on, it was in our heads all the time because the challenges were huge. So in some cases, we did receive additional funding related to COVID and to the COVID crisis. Great news, of course, you know, more money coming in, but again, managing and, 
and management and board, you know, we really need to be agile. So that coming to what you said before, Michael, again, about agility, that was really a test for us and knowledgeable on how to best distribute um, where and where the funding should be going and where it would have the best impact on short, mid and long term. Um, you have to be fair to all sectors and not to be complacent to those who scream the loudest. And it's in this time of crisis that you see if board members really understand their role and see if they're wearing the proper hat when taking decisions. So independence, but, and, but expertise, you know, can live together as long as when you take the decision, you put the hat on of the organization that you represent. And that's a duality in terms of crisis because sometimes you represent a specific sector and you know that you are about to distribute money to another sector. And you know that when you go back into your, into your, your, your life with your colleagues, you know, you're, you're going to be asked the question, why didn't you fund my book or the book industry? Why did you go to music instead? Or why, why didn't you not put more money there or et cetera? So you really need to have this solidarity between board members and to respect the, the expertise of your management and take risks. It's all a question of risk management all the time, of course. And now we try to plan the future. So if I'm, you know, we're right into this pandemic, it's not over yet. You know, we're, we're having some good news in terms of vaccination and, and et cetera, but you know, we have to plan the future. And a recent study in Quebec, and I don't know if there were, probably you have some similar numbers in the rest of Canada, came out this week about the impact of the pandemic in the living arts industry. So the results are alarming. Um, the, the, the growth national product for performing arts dropped 54%. 24.1% of jobs were lost in this specific field. So 50,000 individuals were affected and 41% are thinking of abandoning the arts and culture industry. So, so this is, you know, we have to take that into consideration and it's really, really, and it is alarming. So culture is fragile, we know, even when we're not in a pandemic situation, our culture is fragile in, in Canada. You know, our country is huge and we don't have many people living in this country if we compare it to some other countries uh, or if we compare it to, to the United States. So that's why subsidies and Canadian funding is so important. Um, so many companies now, uh, Michael, are reflecting on the future of work. It's normal, you know, we're all thinking, uh, you know, what will what will my, my work look for in the next, uh, in the next uh, years or next year or in the next month? As board members in the cultural industry, we're looking at that also for our organizations, but we are also reflecting on what, what is the future of our cultural sectors? Um, and it's mostly probable that the next year will be concentrated um, still on reflections because you know, international events, not so much, you know, um, activities will still be minimal for, and that will probably be lasting until 2022nd, 2023rd. 
before collective immunity internationally across the world, the world takes place. So, so we need to ask our, ourselves, even after that, what will be the sanitary rules? You know, what, what will be the environmental impact? Uh, how can we think of planning concerts and classical symphony five years in advance anymore? I mean, it's, we can't do that anymore. It's something else that we have to reflect on. Um, how are we going to invest to make sure that broadband reaches communities leaving outside of city centers? That's another question we need to ask ourselves is if we're going to go digital more and more, you know, we have to keep on democratizing access to culture and uh, people living outside of city centers still don't have great broadband access. So good news that we've had this, uh, this week. I, I don't know if it's a good news, but you know, Rogers bought Shaw and they're planning to invest uh, $2.5 billion in 5G technology across Canada. And they're supposed to invest $1 billion for rural and First Nation communities to reach, you know, uh, across Canada. So, and, and in the Western of Canada. So this, this is good news, but accessibility to culture uh, will remain a, a, a focus that we'll need to think about as, as board members. And we will have many discussion on risk management and, uh, and good governance. So I don't know if I'm, I answered a little bit of your questions, yeah. but um, well, that's you, a few You put reflexive. a lot of ideas out there, Suzanne. So maybe if I can build on a few of them that For you sure. put out. So one is, is a little bit about uh, process and structure. So yep. I've just finished completing a, a survey looking at um, uh, how the move from a face-to-face -face to fully virtual board engagements has changed. Yep. Uh, everything from timing, duration, behavior. And so maybe a few reflections on, on that to begin. So you said one thing that's changed is the frequency. The old notion that you could have your structured series of meetings, much more fluid, uh, but also, I guess the duration doing long days of Zoom discussions is challenging. So, so it's not it's not happening that way. We have, you know, we've had, um, you know, usually when we have board meetings, uh, 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 they last for uh, at least one day and sometimes two days, and then we combine uh, subcommittees uh, so that we can fill out the two days, and you know, and we're all you know going from one meeting to the other one, and then we have maybe an event at night or we have dinner, and then that's when the informal is such important, also in tying live, uh, links and uh, relationship with your other board members, especially when it's an across Canada board, right? So you don't you don't um, you, you know on the on the, on some boards, you know, it's it's members from all from all across Canada and different communities. So it's a it, it, the informal begins to be really important also, and that's why we need to maintain that. Just to your point a little bit on earlier, but. So what happens now is that um, we have shorter meetings, uh, but they are they're, they're more frequent, and um, but the the subcommittees meeting are a little bit longer. Hmm. So that's what that's what I I I I, I noticed. So we 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 have more in-depth discussions in the subcommittees. They take a little bit longer so that when we come to the board, we can be even more efficient. And we, re we and then it really becomes important not to redo the work that we've done in the subcommittee. You know, the chair of the subcommittee comes on, has like 10 minutes to 
you know, and if there's important topics that needs to be addressed to the boards, we, we take the time that we need, but you know, there's a lot more work being done in subcommittees. We have to be more quick and agile, so, so yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing I find interesting is um, uh, I've also noticed an uptick in attendance in board meetings because of virtual, but uh, on the same side, a, 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 a drop in engagement. <laughs> so more people are attending because of the ability to come in virtually, but perhaps are not engaging to the same extent as before. And I'm wondering, particularly as you've seen within the arts community where you have sometimes larger boards, uh, uh, board members who sometimes have, may have different representative uh, hats sometimes coming yeah. on. How you found that, how have you found the conversations virtually? working in, in your in your board engagements? Well, I think I'm, I think I was, I think I find myself to be uh, lucky to have presidents of boards that make sure that we go around the gallery, <laughs> the Zoom gallery. And of course, everybody has their camera on it. You know, so, so it's not acceptable not to, to have your camera on. So, so, so in that sense, um, we we make sure we have a we have board presidents that make sure that everybody has a chance to talk and there's pauses more often so these pauses that come on more often make sure that you know we have the time to talk and that we have the time to express ourselves but it does make it a little bit more difficult because the um, the the nonverbal is not there so much and even though you're in camera uh, you have to be a little bit more um, uh, sensitive, I think, probably uh, in terms of tone and intervention, because it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit um, um, cold, colder. Right. Right. right? So, yeah. uh, but, you know, it's really the chair's responsility to, to make sure that they view and they give wording to everybody in the gallery view. And, you know, and it's true now that you, you know, we do and choose a technology that allows you to have a large gallery. Right. Because if your gallery is limited to five people and your board is 15, then you have a heck of a problem. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to shortly, because I see my second colleague, John, joining us. I've got one question for you, Suzanne, just it's a good connection over to John. And that is it, it, the, the nature of uh, the communities you work with and, and mm -hmm. you know, uh, digital. Yeah. So that's digital is a medium. Um, how have you found, because it's the, the medium that uh, is digital, has that also had an impact on the engagement virtually of uh, board members? So have they been more, uh, uh, more um, uh, embracing of moving to this digital format that we're mm. using now as boards? Mm. Uh, as a board member or as, as a, a board member. as a as a consumer of arts well as a, as a board member and as a consumer i guess we're seeing some fascinating auctions in the, in the digital space these days as we know well you know across canada we know that one out of two person went to a cultural event online mm. So, so this is this is interesting, right? So, uh, it gives you perspective on the possibility of having digital events uh, online. But um, you know, uh, some people say that 
those, and, and maybe it's another topic that we can address a little bit later when we talk mm. about risk, risk management for the future and everything. But right. um, yeah, I mean, at, at the beginning, we did have some board members that were not so used to using, uh, you know, conferencing like that, and it was uncomfortable. But, you know, we had so many meetings in the last year that, you know, it, they ramped up pretty quickly, actually. Exactly. Yeah. So that then gets me to uh, Suzanne as well, a few uh, points of conversation. So one, um, John, is governance is governance is governance. The governance in the, uh, the corporate world is not necessarily different than governance within the arts community. Um, uh, I'd have colleagues uh, in, in different spheres who would, who would maybe push back a little bit on that thought. Um, Susan, uh, any comments on that? Is it really just a question of understanding the, a different language and a different context maybe, but the core principles should be universal. So what are your thoughts, Suzanne? Governance within the arts community. Well, I sort of agree with uh, with what uh, John said prior. You know, it's uh, whether it's a non-for-profit, if it's a, you know, the governance principles should remain the same. You know, you you do have your role as a fiduciary, and you do have conformity that you have to go through, and you do have you know strategic planning that you have to look into. And it's a, it's not because it's it's a it's a government funding institution. When when it's a government funding institution, the challenge that you have is to keep the arm's length because uh, the arm's length is that's that's the challenge and and when you're in a cultural industry what I've said before is that you have you deal with personalities that are publicly known and they benefit from this funding so they feel empowered to call the minister directly you know, and they, they, they put pressure in the media, they put pressure on the stage, you know, they, they use their microphones whenever, you know, they, they, they feel that it's, it's, um, it's a good cause. So you have to be very um, uh, strong as a board uh, to be able to, to make the proper decisions that you think are the good decisions to, to maintain your, your cultural um, environment ecosystem strong and alive and and when you have these um, uh, and and, in, and as I've mentioned in, in times of pandemic you know um, you, you tend on wanting to uh, you, you can't satisfy everybody and you know the, the the poorest are suffering the most and the richest are you know the the artists that have a lot of success um, you know they they keep on pushing and they're creating and and when this pandemic will be over that's an interesting question we'll have to ask ourselves when this pandemic will be over we know that you know the creators right now are creating they're not performing but they are creating so what will happen when this is over? There will be a huge congestion of offer of cultural content. Mm. And, and, and we will have to make some difficult decisions and we will have to be very knowledgeable of the impacts of these decisions that we will be taking. So are we going to, to be um, a keen on, 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 on going for renowned artists that will bring in, you know, more benefit? Is it a secure environment that we want? Or is it something that we, we want to make, uh, make take, take risks and value emerging artists that, you know, that have been, 
that will have less opportunity because there's so much congestion in the in, in the offer. Uh, web, you know, what, what do we do with that? Uh, are we going to decide that we are protecting our local artists and um, and not so embracing international uh, cooperation? This is something that could happen also. So it's all, you know, these these sort of um, these sort of questions that we need to, to when we address risk. And as I and to come back to your question, I mean, risk is everywhere, and mm -hmm. uh, and and we will have to we will have to to be planning. We will have to be reflecting and meeting more often. And it comes back to that, you know, meeting more often and and asking these difficult questions and uh, and planning the next pandemic. Is I mean, it, would it, yeah. Oh, please, yeah. yeah. No, no. I mean, yeah. you know, we we can't think that there won't be another uh, environmental disaster or a new crisis or another pandemic uh, closer or further than we thought than we think. So we are the the world is going to be a little bit different for the years to come, and we need to to prepare ourselves accordingly. Can I join in on on, yeah, on that? I think the question of risk is a terribly important one. One of my best colleagues on the British Museum, who is an accountant, and um, people sometimes have very narrow views of accountants, and um, he ran the audit committee, and one day he said, I'm, I'm, I'm fed up of the risk register. And everybody said, why shouldn't you look at risk? He said, there are dozens of risks on this register. People just make them up. It's become an industry. He said, I'm sick to death of this. And what I want is, first of all, fewer risks. We also know what they are. But he said, opportunity is the obverse side of risk. And unless you can tell me what the opportunities are, then I won't just listen to your endless list of risks, which is actually a way of covering people's backs. Coming from an accountant, I find that very, very liberating. The other thing, Suzanne, I think you're absolutely right. The question of the pent-up uh, creativity, which is, I was going to say smoldering, it may even be more than smoldering, uh, and which is growing up and finding how we fully identify that when things get back to a degree of normality, then how that is used, then how that is fitted in to the more conventional aspects of arts and cultural presentation is going to be very, very interesting indeed. But your sense that there is pent-up creativity waiting to burst out and the challenge, the opportunity, is to say, how do we harness that? I think that could be one of the really really exciting, almost beneficial things um, that come from this ghastly situation that we're in. Yeah. Well, maybe just a build on a, on a thought that you both put out there. I mean, I, we have this conversation in uh, the director's college, Suzanne, this notion of, you've heard the term used many times, I mean, uh, uh, diversity of thought. I love a quote by uh, F. F. Scott Fitzgerald in one of his plays, The Crackpot. The, uh, Crackpot. the mark of a superior intellect is the ability to, ho to hold two opposing thoughts in one's mind at the same time without being paralyzed. So um, 
when you have a corporate, and the criticism against traditional, traditional corporate boards, lack of diversity. And we're addressing that slowly. Uh, in the arts communities, perhaps a much broader range of diversity with large boards, lots of different stakeholder pers uh, perspectives, um, but the default could be uh, a degree of paralysis. And back to the university question as well. So how, what, are the, what can one do to, to kind of build alignment? And John, I was struck in your book about examples of where the chair got it right and where the chairs failed in their duty. So maybe some comments around the role of an effective chair, particularly in an arts organization. So any thoughts? I think they, yes, I, I think they have to have a rather clear sense of priority. And first and foremost, they have to get on with their chief executive. I found something I jotted down in another context uh, this afternoon, and that was about the relationship actually between a vice chancellor and a chair. Mm. And I said three things are absolutely necessary. Trust, complete. Yep. Time, have to give it time, and fun, fun. Because if you don't enjoy it, and if you don't have time for fun, you won't get all the other things right. And you won't get all the difficult things right, unless you have a sense of fun as well. Um, uh, I, I, I don't know whether that, that, that covers that. Incidentally, one of our colleagues said to me on the University of the Arts, they said, the reason that I, the chairman of the council, and the vice-chancellor, a lawyer, Nigel Carrington, got on very well, was because you were so different. And I said, really? And said, yes. You, as a journalist, saw everything that happened as an opportunity that had to be seized now. You know, here's a new story, do it now. The lawyer said, yes, there's an opportunity, but how are we going to do it? So response and process. And we each understood, I think, though I didn't fully understand it until this board member had put it in that way, that these two qualities, one, me saying, that's important, let's do it. And the vice chancellor then saying, right, let's now work out how we do it. That actually worked terribly well. But you do need that sort of balance and that sort of contrast. And by the way, as far as large boards are concerned, boards in, do have to take decisions. And boards are not there to be fully representative. There's an element of representation, but they're not just representation. You can actually build in representation to ancillary bodies, like, for example, an advisory council. Mm -hmm. You can tap into advisory council, people who you can get in touch with at any time for any sort of set of purposes. But you must not, I really believe that, you must not have an ex a, a supervisory board which is so large and is so representative that it can never be decisive because boards do have to be decisive as well. Well, maybe just one other question on, on that, Mark. Um, uh, again, I, I think I'm borrowing uh, a paraphrasing from your book, but I found quite interesting. Uh, uh, when the margins for success are so thin, 
the tendency to wade into the details becomes higher. And so within the arts community, the margins can be very thin in very different respects, financial margin, margins, uh, build margins, uh, you know. Um, uh, so how, in your experience, how has a good board and a good chair help the board navigate that line between what is strategy and what is getting into the weeds, getting the fingers into, into the weeds, which will drive uh, uh, good management crazy uh, sometimes. So Suzanne, maybe, maybe some thoughts, Suzanne, and then John. So your experience, how do you navigate that line between what is strategy and what is getting into the weeds? Sorry, it, it, it's an interesting question because when, uh, when John, you, you, you talked about risk versus opportunity, it, it, you know, it really struck a light in my head because it's true that we can get, you know, really tangled up into, oh my God, this is risk, this is risk, and then look at opportunity instead. And, and in, in the culture, coming back to digital, you know, the challenges that we will have with digital and everything, um, then the, the list of risk becomes really high because you know you're you're part of you have to deal with cybersecurity now you have to you have to you know look at everything that could happen and if you if you if you only do that you know you won't do anything because it's it gets to be so so complicated and, and you have to so and, and and in an audit sense that's what I was you know you everything is moving to cloud base and to digital and everything so so your budgets aren't the same anymore you're moving everything from capex to opex and and you know and auditors are not used to that and it's not the same way of dealing and doing stuff so so if you get tangled and if you get stuck in all these things then you stop doing actually what you're hired to do as a board member is to push you know culture and to to make sure that it's out there and to make sure that it's accessible and to make sure that you know and it's okay so so in that in that sense you know to have board members that come in with these knowledge of you know digital and 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 diverse and they're open to other experience you know becomes really important um, uh, and 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 to come to, to to that, you know, to be able to be to be um, agile and to be quick on 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 what needs to be done and not get tangled up into, you know, these huge mm -hmm. amount of documents that you need to read. Um, it's uh, yeah, and I think I lost my first question, but I think I, I sort of managed through your answer. Um, you, you did. You, you did. It's that line between, you know, keeping the board's eye on strategy and not getting into the weeds. And particularly, John, when you've got sometimes volunteers, trustees who do it because of a passion in the arts and the culture and want to sort of jump in sometimes. So navigating that line. I just wanted to, I just, John, I just wanted yeah. to say that, you know, strategic planning for me now is something that you should do on a, on a regular basis. I mean, you don't, it's something that, you know, you can't just do a strategic planning and close it up and look at it five years from now and say, you know, okay, what's our next strategic planning? It's a, it's going too fast and we need to revisit that every second year or so. That, mm. that was my last point. Yeah. Sorry, no, I, on, on expertise, um, at a personal level, I was usually recruited onto boards because I was the journalist and with supposed media background, and uh, that was why I got the invitation. 
in very many years on many boards, I don't recall being asked for my direct opinion about anything to do with media or journalism mm. at all. I like to think that I occasionally had things to say on other subjects because isn't this one of the important things about boards? You may go on with expertise, but actually you're valuable for what you are as a person. You're not just mm. there with a flag sticking out of your head saying media, money, human relations or something. You're there because you are a human, uh, a human being, and people often often forget that. You know, and everybody's equal on a board because they're equal human beings, not because they've got a particular expertise. Um, on the question of uh, how to avoid getting boards being completely drowned in in detail, the thing that changed governance at the British Museum was when. Lord Brown, John Brown, chairman of BP, became a trustee, and he said, the board of 24 people, which is 24 people by Act of Parliament, which is very large, but it's there, it's far too large to take these decisions. It cannot possibly deal with all this welter of business. And he did something which is perfectly standard and, in a sense, perfectly simple elsewhere, so there were four then key strategic subcommittees, strategy, finance, audit, etc. Said those and 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 a chairman's committee. They're the ones who have to do the detail, and then that goes to the main board. But he said, remember, it's only the main board which can speak for the whole institution. So you've got to give it the opportunity to speak for the whole institution. And by taking away all this detail, you liberate the board to be what it needs to be, which is the voice of the entire institution. And that was a complete game changer. A lot of the academics, understandably, didn't like it. They felt they were being made rem you know, remote from what the, university, from what the uh, museum was about. But over time, they understood this made the museum incredibly more purposeful and effective. Um, actually, on that note, John and Susan, I'd like to add the voices of others around the virtual table. Now, I'd like to invite them to now join us in dialogue. And you'll know the, uh, we know the phrase well, Chatham House rules, so you can ask questions, but it stays on the, the virtual uh, conversation here. So please unmute yourself and put your uh, video on if you can. Um, you can join us and we'll continue our conversation for a bit longer here with, uh, with John and with Suzanne.